This is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. Welcome to another episode of Doing Translational Research. Um, I am your usual host, Chris Wildeman, director of the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research. And I'm here today with Bruce Lewinstein. Um, Bruce is chair of the Department of Science and Technology Studies here at Cornell. Um, and he's sort of an expert on communication uh, of science and technology. Um, I, I also, um, this is not an ageist comment, but I think of you as like a Cornell institution. Oh, like no. I feel like everybody kind of knows you and everybody likes you. I feel like a lot of people know me and no one likes me. So I'd yeah, like to, true. if you could teach me that, that would be great. But um, I, I guess usually we don't have people kind of do a more traditional intellectual biography, but um, unlike most people, I'd actually like to know about <laughs> yours. Usually I'm kind of like, I did a PhD in sociology. Um, so you start, Chris, well, first off, thanks a lot for inviting me sure. to be here. Um, and it's interesting because you use the phrase sort of expert. And, <laughs> and, and that actually captures a lot of it. So uh, I started out, I was going to be a journalist. I was going to, actually, I was going to be a scientist. Um, I was good in sciences. I went through college. You know, when you're good, they just track you into science. And about uh, two thir- three quarters of the way through, I realized I wasn't going to be a scientist. Um, I had no experimental imagination. Meanwhile, I'd been a journalist since I was 11 years old. So I, and I knew there was a field of science journalism. So I put those together. And when I, I had a design your own major that was half physical sciences and half humanities. I worked for a few years as a science writer. And then I started having questions about what role does science writing play in the relationship between science and society. So that's what I went back to graduate school to study. I have a PhD in the history and sociology of science which was also jointly supervised by the program in science and technology policy. This was at Penn. By the time I was writing my dissertation, I was pretty sure I did not want to be an academic. I was planning on going back into publishing. I really enjoyed publishing. There were also some family reasons why that made sense. Just as I was writing my dissertation, Cornell advertised for someone who could teach history of American science and science journalism. Those were the two things I was qualified to teach. It was a tenure-track job at a name-brand school, uh, (laughs) and here I am 32 years later. Um, If you think of a researcher as someone who knows everything but knows it about nothing, a very narrow, very deep slice, and you think of a journalist as someone who knows nothing but knows it about everything, very broad, very thin layer, as a researcher, I'm still a journalist. (laughs) (laughs) So I have uh, crossed over. I'm the, my general interest is uh, public understanding of science. I think the world would be a better place if more people had access to the kind of reliable knowledge that scientists produce. As a historian and sociologist of science, I can take apart that sentence I just gave you. Um, what do we count as reliable knowledge? Who gets to decide what counts? What does it mean to know something? Uh, what are the mechanisms that these things, where, how these things actually happen in detail and thinking historically, how has that changed over time? Um, so anything in that broad space, I will look at. I said I'm a historian. Mostly I work in post-World War II America. 
if it has happened since you and I started talking t- a few minutes ago, it's history. <laughs> so, can you? I, I mean, again, I I just find thinking about these issues sort of fascinating. So I I'm going to probe you a little more directly on your research than I usually do. I can you maybe talk about sort of an interesting case in terms of controversies around reliable knowledge that folks might not be so aware of? I mean, it could be something that was a little more in the distant past or that folks don't really talk about as much. Uh, So the case that I worked on actually shortly after I came to Cornell was called Cold Fusion. There were two electrochemists uh, working at the University of Utah who claimed that they had found a way to produce nuclear fusion in uh, what was called the tabletop or kitchen apparatus, $100,000. It was a pretty big kitchen, as one of them said. Uh, but given that people that we've poured billions of dollars into fusion research and, have, and it's always 20 years away, this was a big deal. These were prominent electrochemists. This was a former president of the Electrochemical Society. These were people who'd won international awards. These were not kooks. And yet what they were claiming violated principles of physics by 40 orders of magnitude. (laughs) So the question becomes, who do you believe and how do you believe? And how does the information flow? Technically, they had had accepted a peer-reviewed article at the time that they made a public announcement. It was an article that, when it was published, had a full page of errata, and which, including adding the name of an author, uh, and which some physicists said would have received maybe a D minus, but more likely an F, <laughs> in, in in a first-year physics class. Okay. Uh, there were accusations of fraud, there were accusations of sloppiness, secrecy, patents were involved, there was competition with another researcher at uh, Brigham Young University, and and the media was deeply involved. Literally, they announced it at a press conference that was covered on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Interestingly, it was buried inside the New York Times. Hmm. Uh, and that, you know, that gets us to sort of different ways that journalists respond to information and how they, um, how they think about it. And, the, and, and some scientists were actually getting be, their information from the media. There's one famous quote where somebody says, well, they didn't give the dimensions of the, un, of the apparatus. So he was holding it in his hand in the photo. And I figured, well, my hand's about the same size as his. So that must be about, you know, the dimensions that we need to do. Or someone else who said, well, we couldn't get that information, so I asked the journalist, could you get me that information? And so the journalist went back and he asked the researchers for some information. And then he went back to the researcher and said, well, that's what they told me. Well, no, that can't be true because you need to ask them about this. So it raises questions about how information flows. And is science this nice linear process that sometimes gets portrayed? Or is it a lot messier in terms of where information comes from and who, how you make judgments about it and so on? Yeah. No, I mean, super interesting. I, I, so, I mean, I did, um, I did just enough philosophy and sociology of science to be, like, vaguely dangerous, I think, um, which I guess is either probably good. Me too, probably me too. But <laughs> <laughs> it's, I don't know if it's a good thing about going to a liberal arts college or a bad thing, but 
Um, that's a different topic. Um, so the, I mean, I guess one thing that would be interesting to hear you talk about a little bit is like, it, it's sort of a two-part question, I guess. So first, is is the work you do, do, do you find that it centers more around these like normal science kind of moments or does it center more around these like paradigm shifting sort of Kuhnian revolution sort of moments? I wouldn't say they're sort of Kuhnian revolution kind of moments, partly because of questions about how how much that actually happens. <laughs> sure. Um, but there's a general principle in the sociology of science which says you study controversies. Mm. And the reason is, is because controversies are when something's not working right. And so there's tensions, and that reveals things that are normally hidden in everyday situations. So uh, I've done um, uh, science since things like cold fusion, we've studied media coverage of biotechnology, my students, we've studied media coverage of nanotechnology. So these were things that were active and that there was controversy and that people were pushing lots of money at. So there was some strain in the system that was happening. I've also done oral histories with people who are, who were major policymakers and one in particular I'm working on now is someone is, the reason he wants to tell his story is because there was a very controversial moment. And so that reveals things about how policy gets made and what some of the pressures are and, and so on. So in general, I would say we tend to look at the more controversial things. Not always. I've also done evaluations of science museum exhibits. How do people respond when they go to a science museum? Mm. Uh, things like that. So... There are other ways of getting information. Uh, it's not just controversies, but uh, I think controversies are a particularly useful moment, useful opportunity for studying. Cool. Um, we're going to pivot slightly. Um, apparently, pivot is a word that I dramatically overuse, according to one of my um, one of my colleagues. So, uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll just use it, it more probably because <laughs> yeah, yeah. it plants it in my head now. Um, so, you're. So I think of your work as being really sort of translational in nature, but the stakeholders for the sort of translational research that you do are different. Mm -hmm. and, and so it would just be interesting to hear a little bit about sort of how you think about the different stakeholders within the kind of work that you do, and then also sort of how you engage with them sort of during the process, maybe after. So remember earlier when I said my goal is to, uh, that I think more people need to know inf good, reliable information about reliable knowledge, but that I can take that apart. I think of that as a sort of gestalt shift. One of them is a doing it kind of focus. One of them is a reflective focus. So I'm often working with scientists who are interested in communicating about their work or sometimes trying to convince them that maybe they should be communicating about their work. And I'm trying to give them skills or ways of thinking that will help them do that better. So I think of that as the more translational part. And, and, and not just teaching them how to write a better sentence or, or press release. Because that's not coming out of my research. My research is about you need to be listening to your audience. You need to be understanding what the values of your audience are. 
and you need to understand that just because they don't think the way you do doesn't mean they're wrong or stupid or something. Uh, just before we started this discussion, I was looking at books on your shelf, and I pulled out Clifford Geertz's Local Knowledge. Mm. Right? So communities have knowledge, and you have to begin where they are. And that's something I can help teach people. Uh, I once said that in, a, in a, an op-ed, which led to a letter to the editor from Isaac Asimov mm. saying pretty close to, I don't understand who this Lewinstein fool is. <laughs> he says I need to start where people are, but if they believe in magic, does that mean I have to believe in, I have to start with magic? Um, the title of my piece had been The Arrogance of Pop Science. And so he goes on with a couple more examples like this, and then he goes, by Newton, not by God, by Newton, I'd rather be arrogant than stupid. <laughs> with all due respect to the late Isaac Asimov, he was wrong. Um, he, was, he was speaking to people who are already interested in science. He wasn't going to convince anybody who, or who had no objection. He was not going to be able to solve the biotechnology or nanotechnology or synthetic biology controversies by explaining better how synthetic biology works. Right. <laughs> now that's, he was dead by the time synthetic, modern, synthetic biology came along. But, but that's the kind of thing that I want scientists to be more reflective about. It's not just about if I give them more information, that will solve the problem. Yeah. Uh, what researchers call the deficit model, in my field called the deficit model. Can, can you think of... Can you think of an example where um, where you feel like a, a scientist or group of scientists have communicated really well about something really difficult? And it, it, this could either be a group that you engaged with or just something you've been kind of more observing from a distance. Um, two examples come to mind. I don't know how well I have the details, but so nanotechnology. Nanotechnology came along in the early 2000s, shortly after big controversies about GMOs and biotechnology that had led to the shutting down of some biotechnology research, to uh, diplomatic incidents where uh, genetically engineered crops are not allowed in certain countries, and therefore that because that affects trade and so forth. And so the nanotechnology community said, we don't want that to happen to us. And so we want to make sure we pay attention to the social and ethical issues uh, associated with nanotechnology right from the beginning. Now, they were doing it for very defensive reasons. So perhaps not from a, we need to listen to the audience reason. But it did lead them to engage in a bunch of activities that involved having community discussions, speaking to various groups, uh, and so on. And in fact, we haven't had a big controversy about nanotechnology. The little ones and such. Now, maybe that's because they just never got there. Maybe it's because they did great PR. I'm not, I don't know that I can pinpoint, you know, it's a negative. Why did something not happen? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, the other example has to do with climate change where there have been some communities where people in the communities largely are critical of the idea that humans have caused climate change. 
They may or not, not even believe the change is happening, but in any case, it's not human caused. Nonetheless, these are often people whose communities are being inundated by floods or where there's been drought or where there's flooding as a result of, of tidal changes and so forth. And some people have tried going into those communities and say, let's not talk about causes. Let's just avoid that. Let's talk about the fact that you know that five times in the last 10 years, the breakwater has gone underwater and, and there's been really bad damage. What are we going to do about that? So you take their local knowledge, you take it away from the values, the, the thing that you know is going to be deeply political, and focus on the mitigation. Now, that won't get us to long-term change that may need to happen, but it's a way of engaging with that community in the place that they are and in ways that are necessary if we're going to um, make any progress whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, I mean, it's really helpful. It, Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like I'm learning a totally different set of things today than, than usual, which is really, really fun. Um, and I I appreciate you coming. So, so let me, I, I just have kind of one maybe maybe closing kind of piece. And I, I think, I think like the breadcrumbs are already there, but just having, asking it directly, I think will be good. So, it, you know, for those of us who, are social scientists or um, or hard scientists? How? What are the what are the two or three things that we could do to communicate um, the core features of our work to to constituencies who who might not listen or or who might um, usually like what are the couple things that we could think about doing? The first the first thing is to be members of your community, and that means talking about what you do at PTA meetings, or rather at the PTA picnic, um, in your, if you go to a place of worship, uh, whatever your religious or uh, spiritual beliefs are, not divorcing who you are and what you do from these situations that are not your professional situations. Because the key thing is building trust with your audiences. And that's, you do that with people you know and people you interact with in all kinds of settings. So that's at a local level. At a broader sort of policy kind of level, it is not being arrogant. It is going in and saying, other people know things, and I have to understand what it is they know, why they believe the way they believe, uh, and whether that's by going to community meetings of groups that I'm not all that comfortable with, um, whether that's uh, testifying next to someone who you think is not just wrong, but possibly evil. Mm. Uh, you nonetheless have to do that. There are some people who will argue, no, you're giving a platform to, to, to the wrong people. But if you don't engage with them, you're just setting up a, um, a barrier that people will never be able to cross. Um, and so this means paying attention to culture. Uh, there's a colleague of ours named Dan Kahan at Yale who talks about cultural cognition. That You need to recognize that people have to, if they have to choose between information and the culture that has nurtured them and supported them and that gives them value and meaning to, in life, they're going to go with their culture every time. Mm -hmm. So you really need to pay attention to those cultural issues. Great. Well, this... Um 
I feel like, A, I'm not doing any of those things particularly well, which I'm just going to bracket, but now at least I know what I should be doing. Um, and yeah, just close by saying thanks so much for coming and talking to us. I'm sure that people are going to be really excited when they, when they listen to what you have to say. Well, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me here. about translational research or the work of the Bronfenbrenner Center, please visit www.bctr.cornell.edu.